Scripture reading today comes from three different passages in Proverbs. The first is Proverbs chapter 22, verse 9. If you're using the Blue Pew Bible in front of you, it can be found on page 544. Proverbs 22, 9. Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. And the next passage is 28, chapter 28, 27, which is 550. Page 550, Proverbs 28, 27. Whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. And the last passage is chapter 19, verse 17, which is on page 542. Proverbs 19, 17. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more. Father, we thank you for your holy, inspired, and errant word. We pray now that your spirit come and minister to us through the preaching of that word. We pray, Lord, that you would Make our hearts ready to receive what it is you have to say to us that we might respond with faith and obedience. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, so far in our study of Proverbs, we've mainly been preaching through whole chapters. Uh, It works pretty well to go through the whole chapter if you're in chapters 1 to 9 of Proverbs. Once you get into chapter 10 and on, There's less of an apparent organization, and each proverb can be taken and studied alone. But even if you do that, even if you're just picking a few proverbs, it's still important to interpret uh, those proverbs in the context of the whole book and then in the context of the whole canon of Scripture. And so today, our primary proverb is going to be the first one that James just read, Proverbs 22, verse 9. And its main focus, as you can apparently see, is on generosity specifically on our generosity towards the poor. We're also going to consider a few other Proverbs, like the other two that were read. And all, all, in the whole uh, look of these Proverbs, we're, we're going to be making sure to set them in the overall storyline of Scripture. Now, the reason we chose these particular Proverbs this morning is because this morning's message is aligned with the new mercy ministries that we introduced this past Friday at our membership meeting. Uh, Towards the end of last summer, I preached on the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and in that message, I issued an invitation for anyone that was feeling convicted, anyone feeling like like the Spirit of God was was moving in them to to action. I invited uh, people to, to reach out to me and we join, and, and to join a task force, a task force that was going to be assigned the responsibility of figuring out how we as a church can better serve the poor around us, around specifically this church building. And the key was to do so in a responsible, sustainable, and Christ-centered way. And a handful of people responded, and we've been meeting together uh, since September, 
on a regular basis, and we've identified three touch points where we as a church typically encounter the poor. There's the poor at our door. So during the week, we occasionally do have people come to our church door asking specifically for help. They typically are asking for, for money. Um, and of course, we have to ask ourselves, is that uh, is giving them money the most responsible way to help them? We're working through how best can we help those who come to us. There's another touch point. It's the poor that we drive by. Wherever you drive around in Houston, especially on your way over here to church, you're bound to see panhandlers asking for uh, money on the side of the intersection. And we've uh, made care packages that we would distribute to them in the past, but we've never really maintained an inventory. And so our care package ministry has always been quite sporadic. Can it be more sustainable? Those are questions we ask. And the third touch point is the poor under the underpass. Most of you on your way to and from church have noticed the high number of homeless under the underpass over on Main and 610 and also on Buffalo Speedway and 610. Uh, a lot of them reside there. And instead of just waiting for them to come to us, to come knocking on our door asking for help, can we go to them? Can we visit them? Those, again, are questions we began to ask. Well, with these three touch points in mind, this team of volunteers have developed three new ministry initiatives, and we are publicly launching them this weekend. I'm going to tell you more about those things later, but overall, how you can see all of this is seeing it as the new mercy ministries of our English congregation. And our ministry to the poor through these three initiatives that we're going to be talking about, is only the, the first, the Lord willing, many other mercy ministries that we're going to uh, be able to add to, to this team and to address the various practical needs in our community. This team is going to be available in the lobby after service where you can be able to ask them questions about how to get involved, um, how, how you can be able to, to, to assist. Now, my main goal this morning, of course, is besides just informing you about these things, telling you about these three initiatives, my main goal is to lay out a biblical foundation for why Christians should take seriously our ministry to the poor, especially the biblical imperative to give of our resources to meet the practical needs of the poor. Yes, friends, that, that is in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament. Giving to the poor is a duty of all Christians. It's an imperative. We're going to see plenty of passages saying that. But giving to the poor is not just a duty of a Christian. It's really a description of a Christian. That means it's not a task that you have to check off in order to be a good Christian. Giving to the poor is an activity that characterizes a Christian. It's, it's not the only characterization, it's not the only description, but it is one way to characterize or to describe a Christian. A Christian is someone who gives to the poor. It's like how you would say that dribbling a ball or hitting a jump shot is not just the duty of a basketball player. I mean, it's, it's really a description of one. I mean, yes, of course, you could say that, you know, it's something a basketball player has to do, but it's more accurate to describe it as what a player enjoys doing. So have you ever seen a, a, a true ball player, a, a true basketball player dribbling down the court 
with a sense of, of carrying this heavy burden, this tremendous duty that I have to dribble this ball and I have to hit that jump shot or else. You, you don't see that kind of, of mentality or attitude. No, if they are truly basketball players, then you would expect them to be naturally and for the most part joyfully dribbling down the court and making jump shots. That's what basketball players do. It's an important activity that characterizes them. And that's how I want us to understand this activity of giving to the poor. It's, it's a, it is an imperative. It, it is a duty, but it's best to see it as a description, a description of a Christian, which means you should be wondering if you consider yourself a Christian, does this describe you? Are you living characteristically like a Christian? Now, friends, if we're going to talk about poverty, we're going to talk about generosity, then it's important for us to understand the relationship between uh, some pretty key concepts. And so what we need to do is to understand the relationship between three particular key concepts that I'd like to talk about this morning. First, the concept of poverty and curse, and then the concept of generosity and blessing, and lastly, giving to the poor and lending to God. We need to see how these concepts relate to each other. So the first pair of concepts I want to look at is the relationship between poverty and curse, particularly poverty and the curse of sin. I want to consider the question of what causes poverty. Now, some would say that poverty is self-inflicted. Some would say that it's a consequence of your sin. You're, you're being cursed by God for whatever disobedience, whatever failure you've committed. That's why you're poor. Well, that may be a convenient way to understand poverty for those who aren't poor, but it doesn't hold up. It doesn't explain why godly people sometimes are poor and why sinful people can sometimes be rich. So let me offer a more biblical way to understand it. See it this way. Poverty is a result of the overall curse of sin, but being poor doesn't mean you're cursed. Poverty is a result of the curse, but being poor doesn't mean you are cursed. In other words, there, shouldn't, there wouldn't be a thing, there wouldn't be such a thing as poverty if not for the fact that we are living in a Genesis 3 world, a sin-cursed world. But there is no biblical warrant to assume that poverty itself is a sign that you are personally cursed. So let's, let, let's bring this all the way back to Genesis. Let, let, let's bring it back to the one human activity that most directly addresses the plight of poverty, that being work. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see that from the beginning, work was, God, was a God-given thing. Work was part of God's good created order. Labor is the creational means by which we meet our material needs. Having to work for one's food, to provide for yourself, to provide for the needs of your family, that's not punishment for sin. No, that's part of God's good design. I, I know a lot of us have this idyllic picture of, of the Garden of Eden as if it was this land of leisure. We have this perception that Adam and Eve, all day long, they just laid on, on beds of 
roses and, and, and trees would just lower their branches within arm's reach for them to, to pick off, you know, some fruit. And then, you know, the crops would just, you know, spring up automatically by themselves and, and little forest creatures would forage the forest and bring food and lay it at the first pair's feet. And that, that's the kind of picture we have. But if you actually read Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, it says that Adam and Eve are commanded to work. They're commanded to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That's Genesis 1.28. That idea of subduing the earth suggests that a large part of what God created, what he made in those six days of creation, was still underdeveloped and in need of additional creative work. It needed to be subdued. And then it says in Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, to keep it to cultivate that garden, to keep it up, to make things grow. Adam and Eve, yes, they were living in paradise, and yet if they expected to reap a good harvest every season, they were going to have to work for it. So work is not a curse. Work is part of God's good design. But by Genesis chapter 3, work has become cursed. God places work under the curse of sin. Listen to Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So what we see is that from the beginning, work has been the God-designed means to meet our material needs for food, for clothing, for a a roof over our heads. That, that, That hasn't changed. It's still the same. But due to the curse of sin, it has become so much harder to meet those same needs. The ground has become stingy in giving up its crops, and it brings forth thorns and thistles instead. Because the ground is now cursed, it's increasingly harder to satisfy our material needs, and that increases the potential for poverty in this world. Work just doesn't work the way it was meant to. It's no longer dependable. It's, it's not always fruitful, bearing fruit. It doesn't always pay off. And work itself is not always available. And all of that, friends, I hope you can see, contributes to the problem of poverty. The point is that poverty is definitely a result of the overall curse of sin, that we are living in a sin-cursed world. People are poor because the ground is cursed. Because work is cursed. But friends, that doesn't mean poor people are individually cursed. There's no biblical warrant to say that they deserve being poor or to assume that it's their own fault or that their poverty is completely self-inflicted. Now, 
Of course, that's not to say that the poor are completely blameless and hold no responsibility, but let's just be careful not to make too many assumptions lest we find ourselves in the company of the Pharisees saying, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born poor? And we might very well hear the Lord say to us, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, we can't assume that poverty or blindness or sickness or or thorns in our sides are direct consequences of sin. There's just too many factors involved. But what we can assume, we can assume that they are opportunities for God's glory to be displayed in our lives. So I hope you're you're seeing what I'm doing here. I'm I'm trying to shift our focus away from wondering who's to blame and to not assume that poverty is a direct consequence of sin. It is a result of the overall curse of sin, just like blindness, just like sickness, but being poor doesn't necessarily mean that you're cursed. If you want to know who is cursed, well, according to Proverbs 28, 27, it's actually those who ignore the poor. That's who's cursed. Let me read Proverbs 28, 27 again. Whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. Now, friends, let's be clear about this. This doesn't mean that one individual act of ignoring a beggar just because you didn't roll down your window and you just kept driving past that light and you didn't talk to that beggar doesn't mean that you will now directly incur a curse from God. The same could be said of of how committing any one particular sin doesn't result in God suddenly striking you down with a curse. But if you are characteristically hiding your eyes from the needs of the poor, it could indicate that you are still under the overall curse of sin. The reason that you can so easily hide your eyes from the poor like that is because those eyes of yours may still be blinded from seeing Jesus, from seeing Jesus in the least of these. Your heart very well may still be unconverted, and the eyes of your heart can't see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. It's the same as for anyone who continues to hide their eyes from any command of God found in Scripture. That would just be called living in disobedience. That would be called living in unrepentance. I mean, just imagine with me a father who continually hides his eyes from the needs of his family, who's just ignoring their material needs, who's just being selfish and self-serving, leaving his family penniless and destitute. With a man like that, we probably wouldn't object to to an assumption that he's unconverted and that he's still blind to Christ. Well, it really would be no different for someone who hides his eyes from the poor. Ignoring the needs of the poor could very well demonstrate that you have a false faith. That's what James chapter 2, verses 14 to 17 teaches us. Listen to James. James 2, verse 14. 
What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, this doesn't mean that the mere act of giving to the poor is proof positive that you're a Christian. Devout Muslims give to the poor. That's one of their basic five tenets of their faith. So, Giving alms to the poor obviously doesn't make you a Christian. You're made a Christian through faith in Jesus. Jesus, who is the Son of God, the High King of Heaven, who is rich beyond measure, and yet for our sake He became poor. Why? So that by His poverty, you might become rich. He humbled Himself as a servant. He, he took up his cross. He served us by taking up his cross and becoming a curse for us by dying on that cross. In his death, Scripture tells us in Galatians 3 that Jesus bore the overall curse of sin, which now liberates those of us who are in Christ. That's how you're freed from the curse, not by works, not by you going around giving your money to the poor. You're freed from the curse by faith in Jesus who bore the curse. You are saved by faith, a faith that works, a faith that actually issues forth in good works, according to James chapter 2. So, friends, giving to the poor doesn't make you a Christian, but it does describe a Christian. A Christian is someone who reads a proverb like Proverbs 20, uh, 28, 27, and it says, whoever gives to the poor will not want, you won't lack. And a Christian reads that and responds by exercising Real faith, living faith, not dead faith. A Christian gives to the poor, trusting that the Lord says, I will not want, I will not lack. God is going to faithfully supply my needs as I'm giving of myself to meet the needs of others. That's how a Christian thinks. That's how a Christian acts. But if you hide your eyes from the poor, if you look inside your heart and you realize you don't have a heart at all to help them, then be warned that it could very well mean that the eyes of your heart are still blind and you're still under the curse of sin. Friend, if that is you, if that's your case, your case then ask God right now to come into your life, to change your heart, to open up your eyes to see, first of all, Jesus as Lord and Savior, and then to see the needs of those around you. You need a new heart. You need new eyes. And then, as God does that work in your life, then what your new heart needs to hear is a promise that generosity to the poor won't leave you empty. You need to hear how generosity to the poor won't be overlooked by God. You need to hear how giving to the poor will lead to blessing. That's 
how our primary proverb this morning connects these two biblical concepts of generosity and blessing. So let me read again Proverbs 22, verse 9. Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. So to have a bountiful eye, literally there it says to have a good eye, an eye that's been changed, an eye that has been opened up by the Spirit of God, having that bountiful eye is paralleled with sharing bread with the poor. And that generosity to the poor is connected with being blessed by God. Now, friends, this is no isolated text. There are plenty of texts that make this same point. Proverbs 11, verse 24. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Deuteronomy 15, verse 10. You shall give to your poor brother freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. And this is not just found in the Old Testament. Let's go to the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, the Apostle Paul talking about giving. The point is this, he says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Or in Acts chapter 20, verse 35, again, the Apostle Paul speaking. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Here's the point, friends. Generosity generally leads to blessings. But, Hear this, being rich is not a sure indicator of blessedness. You need to keep that in balance. Now, we, we seriously need to take seriously these verses in Scripture telling us that it is more blessed to give than to receive, that if you sow bountifully, you'll reap bountifully, that if you give freely to the poor, God's going to bless you in all your work and all that you undertake, that the one who gives freely grows all the richer, that whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed. We've got to take these passages seriously. It would be a disservice to you, and it would really be an unfaithful treatment to God's Word if we were to downplay or to minimize these passages because they sound just too good to be true or too eerily like prosperity teaching. And we feel like, ah, I don't know if I really want to teach that or say that or tell people because it sounds like what you might hear in some prosperity gospel church. That's why, that's why we need to be clear and insist that there's no biblical warrant to say that God's will is for all of his children to be rich. That, that, that's, that's what you're going to hear in a prosperity gospel church, that God's will is for all of you to be filthy rich. That is not what, that is not what we can find in Scripture. That's why we need to state clearly with no equivocation that being rich is no sure sign of blessedness. Since ancient times, 
They've mistaken that. Since ancient times, there's been this assumption by the world that if you're rich, it means that you're blessed by God. And if you're poor, it means that you're cursed by God. But then Jesus comes, and he comes preaching the kingdom, upending the world's assumptions, turning it on its head. He came announcing blessings to the poor and woes to the rich. And so if we are truly Jesus' people, then let's not fall back into some kind of worldly thinking, assuming that being rich means you're blessed and that, 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 by, uh, that being blessed means you'll be rich. But having issued that warning, I do want to make sure that we do emphasize the general truth of this proverb, of Proverbs 22, verse 9, that giving to the poor generally leads to blessings. I think the error of most prosperity teaching is that it interprets those blessings solely in terms of earthly riches, of material goods. But even when the scriptures do promise material things, it's also assumed by these teachers that it must be meant for the here and now. You will experience it right now. There's no recognition that these promises might actually be be fulfilled in the kingdom come. But you know, the most egregious offense of prosperity teachers is that when they tell you to be generous and to give, they don't really have the poor in mind. They're Mean, they mean to give to them, to, to their ministry, to their church. You know, sow this seed. And by that, they, they mean give me this monetary donation, and, and God's going to multiply it, and God's going to return it back to you tenfold. That's what they mean. That's what prosperity teachers say. Now listen to what Jesus has to say. This is from Luke chapter 14, verses 12 to 14. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Did you hear what Jesus just said? You will be blessed, not because your generosity will be readily paid back in kind, not because your friend is now going to invite you over to his house for a feast next week. No, you will be blessed because of the fact that the poor that you are caring for simply cannot repay you back. The blessing that Jesus has in mind is not material, and it's not for the here and now. It's a blessing to be experienced in the kingdom come. You will be repaid at the resurrection, at the resurrection of the just. So friends, I I hope you're starting to see the wisdom here in Proverbs. Proverbs knows why We hesitate to give to the poor, and it speaks directly to those fears and inhibitions. If you think about it, many of us fear what might happen if we are too generous, if we do take Scripture seriously and respond by giving generously to the poor. Are we going to have enough for ourselves? Are we going to have enough for our family? Listen, 
Whoever gives to the poor will not want. Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed. Yes, you're going to be fine. You can trust God to take care of you as you spend yourself on behalf of others. Now, so far we've been you know, making this bare statement over and over again that generosity to the poor is going to lead to blessing. But, you know, we really haven't explained why. Why is that so? Why does one lead to the other? That's what we're going to demonstrate in this third relationship that I want to draw together. It's between giving to the poor and this idea of loaning to God. I get this idea from the last proverb that we're going to look at, Proverbs 19, verse 17. If you want to turn there, uh, I'll read it again. Proverbs 19, verse 17. Whoever is generous to the poor lends, lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. Now, I think that's fascinating. How giving to the poor is like giving a loan to God. It's like you become a creditor to God. It's like you, you're, you're lending him something, and he is now in your debt. I, I know it sounds blasphemous to put it that way, but, but that's what Proverbs 19, verse 17 says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. You're, you're lending to him. You're giving him money. You're loaning to him. This investment, we're told, is going to yield a very good return. You will be repaid for this deed. Now, let me just make two observations here. First, notice, notice how closely God identifies himself with the poor. When you give to the poor, you are giving or lending that money or that resource directly to God. It's like when Jesus said in in Matthew 25, when you show this or that mercy to the poor, to the least of these, you're actually showing it to him. Jesus identifies with the poor and needy, and that's Really, that's why Christians can't hide our eyes from the poor and needy, or else we're going to be hiding our eyes from our own Lord and Savior. But here's the second observation. As we've already said, giving to the poor is an act of trusting in God to take care of us as we are spending ourselves on the poor. Now, because there are just so many needs around us. I mean, constantly there are, there are needy people and needs to be met. I think we do worry that we're not going to have enough for ourselves, not going to have enough for our family if we give too much to others. But if we still give in spite of those fears, trusting in the Lord with all of our heart, leaning not on our own understanding, then there is a sense in which God becomes a debtor. God becomes a debtor to the glory of his own sufficiency. When I put all of my trust in him, if I'm trusting that he is sufficient to meet all of my needs, which makes me then willing to give generously of what I have to other people, then God is now honor-bound to uphold his own glory as that sufficient provider. In that sense, he's in debt 
God doesn't owe me anything per se, but he owes it to his own glory not to let me down when I put all of my hope in him. Listen to John Piper and, and how he explains it much better. Listen to this. The focus of Proverbs 19, verse 17, is not on the Lord's need, but on the certainty of our receiving back from the Lord something corresponding to what we gave to the poor. God treats our gifts to the poor as obligating his own divine generosity back to us with the same certainty as if we lent the money to him and, ma- and he made his integrity the guarantee of our return. When our investment in the poor is an expression of faith in God's provision, then God himself is committed to bringing that investment back to us with the same certainty as though he were in financial debt. Friends, that is why giving to the poor is really one of the wisest ways to invest your money. You're lending it to God. And is there anyone more reliable, more reputable, more dependable to lend your money to than the Lord our God? Is there anyone more that you can count on to repay you? He sees what you do for the poor. He sees how much you give to them in secret. And he knows if you're doing it out of true faith. Faith that he will graciously provide for all of your needs, which then frees you and enables you to sacrificially meet the needs of others. Friends, when you are trusting in God like that, he won't let you down because he won't let his own glory down. That's why giving to the poor leads to blessing. It's because God honors his own glory as you trust in him as your sufficient provider. That's why he'll repay you for your deeds, if not in this life, then for sure at the resurrection of the just. So this morning, what I'm trying to do is to urge you through the word to be generous to the poor and to lend to God and see how he's going to honor that. See how he will repay you. I mentioned in the beginning that we are launching three new Mercy Ministry initiatives. After our membership meeting this past Friday, 100 care packages have been assembled, and they are ready. They're out there. I can see them. They're ready to be distributed to you as you leave this service. Uh, There's going to be a table out in the lobby, and we do ask for you to drop on by and pick up one or two of those care packages. There'll be some instructions in there, how to best steward them, and go and bless the poor that we drive by. One of our goals is to maintain a consistent inventory of those care packages. So occasionally, we're going to be making appeals to you as a congregation, asking you to help by donating specific items to keep our inventory in stock. And so those are just really practical ways that we hope to to give to you as, as ways to practically help the poor. And when it comes to the poor under the underpass, for the past three or four months, and this is I find very exciting, and, and I, I'm so excited to be able to share this thing with you because I'm so proud of this small team of members. For the past three or four months, they have been regularly visiting the intersection, um, those two intersections, right after lunch on Sundays. They've been going twice a month, and they've been kind of you know, checking it out, you know, kind of laying out the groundwork 
for this day. Because today, uh, they want to invite you to join them. They've already been building relationships. They've been providing some care packages and prayer. And they'd like to invite you to join them this afternoon for a visit to the underpass. If you're interested, meet in trailer four, the big room in trailer four, at 1 p.m. after lunch for a brief orientation. And then you leave your car here and you just walk with them and they'll take you over to one of the two intersections and you'll visit with people there for you know, about an hour, hour and a half. Um, and they're going to be with you there the whole time and they already know some of the people there. So you know, feel, uh, feel free to, to join them this afternoon. And lastly, for the poor at our door, we're in the process of developing a pantry ministry by which we can more uh, systematically and practically meet the needs of people who come asking for help. And not just, their, not just their practical needs, because they're coming to a church door, we want to also meet their spiritual needs as well. And so um, that's another ministry that is in the works we want you to know about. So friends, we do hope these initiatives will equip you and encourage you to really give of your time, money, and resources to meet the needs of the poor in our community. If you're interested to join any one of those teams of volunteers, again, go to that table um, after service, and you can just, there'll be some sign-up sheets. You you can be able to to be uh, in their contact list. But friends, just remember, as, as I conclude, that we do this not just because it's a duty of Christians. We do this because it's a description of who we are. We are co-heirs with Christ. We are partakers of his inheritance secured for us in the heavens. We are citizens of a kingdom come. And until that day, we give of ourselves for the glory of God and the good of others. That's who we are. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. And we do pray that as your spirit moves within us, you will bring about the needed conviction, you will bring about the needed motivation to respond in obedience, to respond with a cheerful generosity towards the poor that you have put in our lives, you have put in our neighborhoods, you have put around this church, you have put along the intersections of this city. Help us, Lord, to be generous, bountiful givers. We pray this. In Jesus' name, amen.